Well, please open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter in chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Anyone else enjoy the 70 degree days we had last week, right? We got some more coming next week, and we have a lot of summer between now and then. But I like the cold air as it blows back in. You know that. Not just because flannel's just around the corner, but also football is just around the corner. And uh, whether it's college or professional football, it all has its baggage and turns our stomachs in different ways, I know. But I love the battle on the field. I love, I love that. And I especially love it having not been a college athlete myself. I went to a Christian college. I didn't have many options, and I wasn't really good at anything. But I thought back through my college career, and there were a few athletic events I engaged in. My freshman year, I had to take a PE class, and the only one that still had an opening in it was fencing. You know what fencing is with the swords, right? And uh, makes you deadly with a coat hanger with your roommates later, too. But uh, I took fencing, and you had to wear all the stuff, the, 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 the helmets and all the gear and the gloves, the special gloves, and the, you, had to, you had to learn how to handle what they call a foil you had to learn the parries, the different parries, the different blocks, the different thrusts, some very uncomfortable stances. And lo and behold, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. I'm no samurai, but that was my freshman year. Of course, I played uh, three of the four years soccer. Um, I played that in high school, so I was familiar with that. And uh, we had a decent team during that time. My sophomore year, I made it uh, onto the makeshift karate demonstration team. Um, there were only five of us that, that even cared about it, uh, but the school would send us out to break boards and, and do skits and all that with different youth groups on the weekends, and that was fun. But there's one sport, in addition to fencing, that I had never messed with in high school, and I had to learn there at college, and it, I was familiar with outdoor soccer, but I wasn't familiar with indoor soccer. And the first thing they told me is you can't wear cleats. You can't use cleats on a gym floor. So I got the right kind of shoes. And as you know, if you watch indoor soccer, it's a smaller team. In outdoor soccer, you have out-of-bounds. If you go out-of-bounds, that creates a problem for your team if you have the ball. But in indoor soccer, there is no out-of-bounds. It's a wall. And uh, there's a lot of body checking going on. Well, I quickly learned to like this sport. I could throw elbows and, and, and push someone into the wall pretty hard if I looked like I was going for the ball at least. And at the same time, that happened to me too. But there was a big difference, as I mentioned, between outdoor soccer and indoor soccer. With outdoor soccer, if you go out of bounds, what happens is that pauses the game. And you have to throw the ball in. But in indoor soccer, there are no out-of-bounds. You have to hit the wall. And when you hit the wall, it doesn't pause the game. It could pause you. And by the way, while you're licking your wounds from getting body checked into a wall, the game continues on. It's a big difference between outdoor and indoor soccer. As we come back to our study through the epistle of Peter, 1 Peter, We're talking much about suffering, and we understand why by this point in our journey, not just through his epistle, but through our study of Peter through the Gospels prior to the epistle. And we've learned that Peter here is indeed preparing us to suffer well. 
and how timely this is in our, in our current day here in the West as Christianity is being canceled because of what we believe. We can merely read the Bible out loud and get canceled because immediately it's obvious we don't stand where our culture does when it comes to the definition of, uh, to the belief of God being the creator, uh, the belief in a young earth, the belief that there is one definition of marriage, it's a man and a woman, and the creator gets to make that call, and there's only, there are only two sexes, male and female. We start reading this stuff out loud, and we get canceled at the very least. Sometimes we even get assailed for our convictions, and that can come from government, it can come from employment, it can even show up in our homes. There's a price to be paid being a disciple of Jesus Christ, and suffering is going to be common and even more so as the end times draw near. And that's why we're grateful for this study of suffering, suffering for us as Christians whether it be from government or employment or even in our homes, suffering feels a lot like indoor soccer. We get hemmed in. We get paused and injured, yet the game continues on around us. No one said suffering's going to be pleasant. Peter's not making that statement. As a matter of fact, there are some common questions when it comes to suffering, and I put this in your notes. Common questions. You know these questions. The first question is simply, why me? We think we're getting the answer to that one. It's because we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We're going to cut cross grain. We're going to be swimming upstream in a fallen world as described by Romans chapter 1. We're going to stick out as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, and sticking out, we will be hit. So we're kind of getting our, our, our minds wrapped around the answer to that first question, why me? It's that second question that can get tricky. And the second question we find ourselves asking when, when we're suffering as disciples of Jesus is the simple question, what now? What now? I've been body-checked. It has paused me. It hurt. It's disorienting at some time, at some points. And the game of life and this culture and the attack continues on around me, even though I am reeling from the pain. What now? And here's what I love about what Peter's doing in our text this morning. Peter pauses. If you look at where this paragraph lands in his epistle, he is taking a pause, a breather, if you will, between suffering from a godless government or suffering under the, the thumb of, of godless employers. And when he gets to chapter 3, it's going to get even more intimate and painful because the closer you come to the center of your relationships, the more keen the pain is felt in suffering for Jesus. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, is going to talk about when it shows up in the home. And what Paul, Peter is doing in our text this morning is he's pausing. He's come this far about government and employment, and before he says what he's going to say about suffering in the home, he's going to give us three answers to our question, what now? Look at verse 21 with me. For you have been called... For this purpose, 
Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, or leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. He's answering our what now question with this verse. Three points, just by way of introduction. First of all, he is saying in verse 21 that your suffering, whether it's from the government or from your employment in the culture or even in your own home, which I'm getting ready to talk to you about, Peter writes, your suffering is not arbitrary. It is not arbitrary. It's not a surprise. It's here that Peter reaches for that word again that he's already been reaching for and he will many more times in this epistle. For to you, or for you have been, and here's the word, called. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 15? Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. We're introduced to this, this, uh, this effectual calling of God that not only changes our status from foreigner to son, but it brings with it a trajectory for our life that sometimes will be unpleasant. This calling. We see it here in chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has, here it is, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been set on a trajectory. And as, uh, as we look in chapter 3, verse 9, we'll get more information on this calling and this trajectory. Chapter 3, verse 9, we are not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And then you can go on to chapter 5, verse 10 and see it again. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I mean, this is something that is showing up throughout his epistle, including verse 21 of chapter 2. Part of our calling in our salvation puts us on a trajectory not only of holiness, not only of endurance, but also on a trajectory of suffering. See, this is something that resonates with Peter. We studied his life through the Gospels before we came to his epistle. Remember a question that the author, Peter, once asked his Lord. Turn with me back to the Gospel of Mark. Mark in chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And Peter, of course, is asking a question that the other disciples may have been wondering about, but Peter's the one who has a speaker hooked up to his brain. If there's a question in the mind, it's going to come out through his lips. And look at Mark 10, verse 28. And Peter began to say to him, to Jesus, Behold, we disciples have left everything and followed you. In other words, what do we get? And some of the other gospel accounts um, Peter's being so bold as saying, what, what's in this for us long term? And our Lord's answer is very striking. Jesus said, truly, Peter, I, I, I say to you, there, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Peter would like hearing that. Houses and brothers, sisters and mothers and children and farms. Peter would like that. It's the next phrase that gets tricky. It says, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, it really gets good. Eternal life. That little phrase, oh Peter, you you get it all. You get it all in this life and it only gets gooder in the next life. But with the good, there will be the necessity of persecution for my sake and the sake of the gospel. Peter understands this. Peter understands, and I'm sure he's reflecting back to this account, where uh, suffering is not going to be a mistake. It's been promised. It's not arbitrary. The Apostle Paul definitely agrees. Remember in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, he says, It's not only been granted unto you to believe, but also to suffer. Or Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 3.12, some of his final words we have recorded. He says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See what Paul didn't say there. Paul didn't say, all those who claim to be a Christian will be persecuted. No, that's exactly what he didn't say. It's those who not only make a claim to, to, to being a Christian, but those who are living consistently with the values of the gospel, as a gospel people, they're the ones that are going to get persecuted. What does that say for the many around us in churches like ours who are never persecuted? They never take a hit because of their life and their lips for the gospel. Paul put it this way as he wrote to the church that knew about persecution all too well, Thessalonica, He wrote in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 3 through 4, See that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. So Peter's wanting to answer this question, what now? And the first part of his answer is, um, what now? You need to understand this, that your suffering is not arbitrary. It's not a mistake. It's not even a surprise. He does nuance this, if you recall, earlier in chapter 2. He says, just make sure if you're suffering, it's because you are Christ-like, not because you are sinning. Not because you're being The Greek word would be a jerk. Remember verse 20? For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. Now this finds favor with God. So there's a second part of the answer to the what now question, and it's this. Not only your suffering is not arbitrary, but your suffering is not unique. It's not unique to you. Uh, This is actually a a plural you in this verse. You have been called 
for this purpose. And when that's plural, that just means um, it's true for you, it's true for you, it's true for you. Right now, uh, according to the headlines this morning, Hurricane Hillary, with one L, is spinning off the west coast of California and making a beeline towards Southern California and Mexico. It had reached sustained winds, giving it a Cat 4 ranking. It is dying down a little, but everyone's bracing for impact. Even if it's a tropical storm by that point, it'll still pack a wallop. The governor has already declared a state of emergency for Southern California. If you were to go to Southern California when this storm makes landfall there or in Mexico, uh, you, would, you would say to the people there, I'm, you wouldn't say, I'm in a hurricane right now. I'm in a tropical storm right now as it's hitting. You wouldn't say that. You would say what? We are. You would make it plural because what you're experiencing, others are experiencing as well. And that's what Peter's doing with the storm of persecution. He says, it's not just you. Sometimes we forget that. We're like, I'm the only one that works for Ford that's being persecuted. I'm the only one that is on the campus at the, at the university who holds my values and gets marginalized or canceled. No, that's not true. This is a plural There are others who are suffering like you. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, it's common to man, in case you were wondering. And Peter's going to say in this very epistle, when he gets to chapter 5, verse 9, talking about spiritual warfare, talking about Satan, he writes, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We don't stand alone when we suffer, even if we're alone in the room. So it's not just you that's in the storm of suffering. There are other believers with you, but there's still yet another party in that room who's in the storm with you too. And his name is Jesus. And this brings us to the third point as he answers that question, what now? Your suffering is not arbitrary. Your suffering is not unique. And thirdly, your suffering, listen, is not paralyzing. It is not paralyzing. Some people are saying, I don't know what to do. I can't do anything. This has just been too hard. Being a a, a vocal and and an obedient disciple of Jesus just costs too much coming from government or the work culture or my home. I don't know what to do. Listen, the fact is you will never be left in your suffering to a position of just being blind, unable to move, unable to respond. See, how do you know that? Because of that third party that suffers, Jesus. His option was not to go inactive. He left us an example as this verse says. You have not been called, or for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. This word example is the only time that this particular word um, shows up in the Greek New Testament. It has the idea of of tracing, of, of making a copy of something and 
In many cases, that would be by tracing through what we would call a lighter sheet of paper. We could, if I put some, some um, wax paper or something on top of a coloring book page, I could trace the picture onto that paper just by staying right with the lines of the picture. Same with handwriting. I could, I could forge a, a signature or someone could forge mine by laying something over top of my real signature and tracing it. That's the idea here. This is what I remember in my Christian grade school in second grade uh, at Calvary Baptist of Roseville, learning how to write in cursive. We had to do a lot of tracing. And what Peter's saying to his readers, if you're going to endure this wave of suffering, and Peter knows what he's talking about because he'll die in this wave, then you have to literally copy Christ's example. You have an example to follow. And so it's here that he interrupts his discussion of government and the work culture and, and, and what's coming up with suffering from the family and the home. And he gives us the perfect pattern. And that's my theme for the time that I have left this morning is this. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the perfect pattern for enduring suffering. Straightforward. And there are four parts to his perfect pattern. We'll see this in verses 21 down to verse 25. First of all, number one, what was his example? We see blameless speech. Blameless speech, number one. You see, there are two facts I, I see here, and then I want to I take this to the text. Fact number one is this. Isn't it true that our first reaction, when we don't like our treatment, our first reaction seems to always start with our words. We let what's in our, 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 our heart and our mind out through our mouth. And, and sometimes we'll, we'll tense up our body to deliver the message. Oftentimes we'll contort our face and reach for a tone that is sure to get attention. And on those two mediums, we let words fly when we don't like how we're being treated as Christians. It so often starts, our reaction so often begins with our words. Proverbs 25, 28 warns us, though, that like a city that's broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Or another warning from Proverbs, it's Proverbs chapter 12, verse 16. A fool's anger is known at once. The explosion comes from the teeth and gums. Or another warning from Proverbs, Proverbs 29, verse 11. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. It's true, this first fact. Our first reaction when we don't like our treatment is we let the words fly. Now in our day and time, it might be we let our thumbs fly. Or our fingers fly. But they're nouns and verbs nonetheless, whether they can be heard or read, and they are intended to sting those who are persecuting us. But not Jesus. That's not how Jesus responded. Look at verse 22. 
or following in his steps at the end of verse 21, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Peter is fixated on what didn't come out of the Savior's mouth when he was suffering at a level that we'll never be asked to suffer. You say, well, what, some of us, what if we're martyrs? Does that mean that we hit his level? No, because during his life, the, the, in, the intense nature of what he endured in his tests and in his suffering and even in temptation is something that will never reach that level. It's blameless speech. Peter says it didn't come out. Curses didn't come out. And it's right here and through the end of this paragraph down to verse 25 is the first of six references to Isaiah 53. Some quotes... But all, there will be at least six references, even without a direct quote, to that amazing chapter where our Lord is, is prophesied as the suffering servant. He's going to, Peter's reading in his devotions out of Isaiah, and his Bible's open there. What do we see in Isaiah 53? In the quotes that we see here, even, in 1 Peter 2. We see this, that Jesus, though abused, though reviled, a very intense word, did not give a receipt. He took no revenge, even though he could, even though he could. You all know Ben, our deacon. He did the scripture reading in the prayer. He seems like a nice guy, right? I mean, Ben's the kind of guy you can walk up to and say, Let's grab coffee or something. Seems like a nice guy. But I happen to know what he can bench press and deadlift. I wouldn't mess with him. But if Ben ever had the opportunity to meet Chuck Norris, how old's Chuck now, mid-70s or something like that? If he had the opportunity to meet Chuck Norris as tough as he is, and the two of them meet, and Chuck says, it's nice to meet you, Ben. And Ben says, Chuck, it's nice to meet you too. And then Ben were to reach back and punch Chuck in the nose. I'd buy tickets for that. I want to see what's going to happen after that. He might be in his mid-70s, and Ben may be strong, but this is going to be a show. And Chuck, I think, is going to win. You know why? You punch, you punch Chuck Norris in the face, you're going to get a receipt. <laughs> you're going to get a little, little response, because he can. Jesus, listen, in Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1, he's the creator. And these people are abusing and despising and reviling the Creator. Could he have given a receipt? Yes. Did he? No. He perfectly fulfills what we understand in Isaiah 53. You say, well, how can he do this? How can Jesus endure what he endured without giving a receipt? And that brings us to the second fact. The second fact is this. It's true for Jesus. It's true for us. Our words reveal our heart. Whatever's in our heart is going to come out in our words. If we think we deserve better from an unsaved, godless, wrath 
waiting culture, we think we deserve better from them than what we are receiving from them, that's going to work its way out from our heart to our words. But what comes out of Jesus' heart is something different. What comes out of his mouth? You say, what's going on there? You see, the difference between Jesus and us is that he's sinless. He's absolutely sinless. We call this the impeccability of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin. That's pretty much face value. He's without sin. In Hebrews 4.15, we read these words. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet, and what are the next two words? What are the next two words? Yet without sin. And Peter, the writer of these words in this epistle, in Acts chapter 3, is standing in front of the, the rejecting crowd and rulers, and, and he says this, you disowned, and referring to Jesus, he says, you disowned the holy and righteous one. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. We could stand in this pulpit for weeks and declare to you from different texts the sinlessness of Jesus. That's what was in his heart. So when he was suffering, out came grace. Jerry Bridges writes these words, Christ's entire life was one of suffering obedience and obedient suffering. He suffered throughout his life and he was obedient throughout his life even in the face of the suffering that he endured. And those are, that's exactly right. You see, well, there's something that he's focused on. If, if, if there's not hurtful words, if, 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 if what's coming out is, is grace... Something on the inside of his heart is, is making its way to the outside. He's treasuring something that's keeping him going. Something's operating in our Lord's heart that will refuse to let him be paralyzed by what he suffers. And I want to know what that is. And we see it in verse 23, the middle of the verse. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Here's a second footprint, not just a blameless speech, but you also see an upward focus. An upward focus. It's interesting, Peter is the one writing this. Remember what he did. When he felt threatened, he was the one holding the sword that night. And he started swinging for necks and he'll settle for an ear. That's the old Peter. This is the new Peter following in the steps of what he would witness that fateful night and day back in the, at the end of the Gospels. He says, you want to know what kept Jesus going like this? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, listen, Jesus could see something, or better, 
Jesus could see someone. Someone who was there. Someone that others through the thin veil couldn't see in those moments. But Jesus could. He could see his father. And what was his response? He kept entrusting over and over again. Notice in the New American Standard, there's there's a word here in italics, which you need to note. It says he kept entrusting himself. The The verse could be read this way. He kept entrusting to him who judges righteously. And the commentators light up on this one saying, well, what was he entrusting to his father that kept him going? There are a lot of different options. He could have been entrusting his cause. He could have been entrusting himself. He could have been entrusting those who were inflicting this suffering on him to the Father just to take care of it all. You say, what's the right answer to that? Which of the three is it? And the answer is yes. He was entrusting everything. The cause that his Father had laid out before him. The course. Himself. And even those who were inflicting the pain, he kept entrusting, I love this phrase, to the one who judges righteously. Wow. As we look at that, it's instructive, isn't it? Whether we're thinking of the government or the work culture or even our homes, that we need to keep our focus on the one that sustains you and the one who stands over your opponents. It's like David and Goliath. You know, David's looking at Goliath, and whenever Goliath decided to stop talking for a change, David had something to say to him. I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you out. Not on a date. This is, I'm going to end you today. Because you're cursing Yahweh. You say, wow, David, you're just a teen. Yeah. I know you've done a bear and a lion, but have you seen this guy's height? Have you seen his gear, his equipment? And David David would say to you, oh, I've seen it all. I've seen it all. I've never seen anything like that. I mean, the lion was slightly better looking. I mean, this guy's kind of ugly, but uh, I can see that. I can see everything you're saying. But the thing that you don't understand is I see something behind Goliath, and it's Yahweh. This victory will come from him, is what David said. That's where we look when we're suffering for the sake of being a Christian. It's an upward focus to the one that no one else can see, but we can see. Because of Scripture, we know. Because the veil is thin, we can see our Father is there over it all. Sure beats looking in other directions, doesn't it, when we're getting beat down? It sure sure looks better than um, focusing on fantasy. See, what do you mean by fantasy? Just wanting to get, get a break from the suffering. Just living for those moments when I can just get some relief. Maybe some escape through substance to dull it and, and, and mute it a little bit. Maybe escape into technology 
where I can just take my mind off it and my whole entire being be reduced to my fingertips and my eyes. Guess what? When the substance wears off, when the game is over, when you log off from social media, it's still there, is it? The suffering is still there. So fantasy world is not a place to look. Neither is our culture. We don't want to convert to our culture so that we go into a camouflage mode with our faith so that if we look like them and sound like them and smell like them and leave the same footprint, maybe they won't persecute us. Well, that's a facade. I like what Bonhoeffer used to say. He says there's no such thing as a secret disciple. Either the secrecy destroys the discipleship or the discipleship destroys the secrecy. There's no middle ground. We can see something that our persecutors can't see and it's the Father who's over it all. But there's a third footprint we see that kept our Lord going, not just blameless speech coming from a a changed heart, not just an upward focus, seeing the Father and the judge. Number three, there's a mission mind. A mission mind. Now this interlude, verses 21 to 25, between government and employment and coming before family when it comes to persecution, this interlude by some have been, has been a, called a beautiful necklace, verses 21 to 25. If verses 21 to 25 is a beautiful necklace, every line so beautiful, reflecting the beauty of Isaiah 53 six times, if these verses are indeed a beautiful necklace, I would say that when we come to verse 24, we come to the precious stone in the pendant. Look at verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. This is a mission mind. Old Warren Wearsby looked at this, word, this verse and he said, In the Old Testament, the sheep died for the shepherd. In the New Testament, the shepherd dies for the sheep. The question we have before us this morning in this text is this. What kept Christ going during suffering? What kept him going? Several things. First of all, our reconciliation kept him going. Our being reconciled to the Father through the sacrifice of the Son. It says he himself, who's the he himself? The one that's without sin. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. This is called substitutionary atonement. And interestingly, in the Greek, the the, the plural sins is front-loaded in this verse, meaning that's where all the attention goes. The sins were great, and Jesus took care of it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. On the cross. And watch this. He didn't just die for our sins and pay the penalty for our sins of the past. As Peter's readers are digesting these words that were written to them, 
Some of them have been reacting sinfully to the persecution. They have been reacting to the suffering. And and in essence, Peter's saying, and Jesus died for your sin that you're doing right now as you're being persecuted. When Christ reconciled us to the Father, when the Father reconciled us to himself through the Son, that reconciliation took care of all of our sins, past, present, and future, if you need alliteration. Future. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. What kept him going? Our reconciliation. But secondly, what kept him going? Our sanctification. Because we have been purchased, because we have become the children of the Father, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, we now are on that trajectory that we looked at a moment ago of growing in our Christ-likeness. It says in verse 24, not only are we reconciled, it has our, our sin been atoned for, but now, because of that, we can die to the sin we struggle with and live to righteousness. There's a, there's a, a real possibility and expectation that we will put off sin and put on Christ-likeness. Because we are alive. And that's what kept our Lord going. To accomplish this reconciliation so that this sanctification, this practical, progressive sanctification can begin to run its course. And again, as he says this to the readers, he's saying, which means you don't have to react to your suffering and against your persecutors. If you're going to be like Jesus. You can't say that you can't respond any other way. You can because Christ did and has given you life and has given you grace to be like him. It's our reconciliation, our sanctification that kept Christ on point in the worst of suffering and persecution. Or you could just put it, to the, put it this way. As he uh, again refers to Isaiah 53, by his wounds you were healed. And this isn't talking about in this context of physical healing. There's one occasion in the Gospel of Matthew where Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records an allusion to physical healing and ties it to Isaiah 53 for that occasion. That's not what's going on here, though. This is a spiritual healing. This is past tense that you had to be cured. It says you were healed. It's done. Yeah. That's what kept our Lord going. Paul Tripp and Tim Lane in their book, How People Change, summarize it with this, these words. The good news of the kingdom is not freedom from hardship, suffering, and loss. That's not the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is the news of a redeemer who has come to rescue me from myself and my propensity to sin. So he suffered and he endured. Hebrews 2, verse 10, it was fitting for Jesus, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. Um, it was fitting for him and the Father 
um, to perfect the author of their salvation, Jesus, through sufferings. Or Hebrews 12, 2, speaking of Jesus. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, listen, endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the Father's right hand. At the, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's, it's just so important. In verses 23 and 24, I know we've gotten theological with you a little bit today, but you need to sit up and grab these words. This is what we call active and passive obedience of Jesus, which he accomplished perfectly. His active obedience was him following God's law, his father's law, his own law, and living it perfectly. His passive obedience is his suffering. And in verses 23 and 24, we see covered both aspects of his obedience. He accomplished his mission perfectly. So what is our mission? What is our mission that we are supposed to set our mind on? We are to be living out in our suffering what his suffering secured. You get that? We are to live out in our suffering what his suffering secured. What did his suffering secure? Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice. In what? Verse 14, this, this inheritance you have that's imperishable and undefiled and won't fade away. It's reserved right now in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We rejoice in this. Even though for a little while it's necessary that you be distressed by various trials. We are to live out in our suffering what his suffering secured. And this will be, listen, most evident during the darkest of times. In government, in the work culture, on the campus, and in our homes when it comes to the gospel. Well, there's one more footprint that our Lord leaves that will help us endure when we suffer for his name. Number four, the end game. The end game. You say, well, what's the end game? Well, here's the end game. Spoiler alert. Jesus wanted to provide security to those he saves. Look at verse 25. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. See, what does that mean? Is that, is that talking about their Monday through Friday? Well, the first part of the verse is talking about their salvation. It says, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned, or you have turned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. In other words, the one that saved you. When you were wandering, and again, there's an allusion to Isaiah 53 here, like sheep, that's a, that's a lost person. When you come to the Father, when you come to Christ, you come to one who not only saves you, but now cares for you and provides for you and walks with you and feeds you. He says, the guardian and shepherd of your soul. 
The end game is this, to produce loyal dependence in us. And he uses two words to describe what we've come to when we come to God in salvation. He uses the word shepherd and he uses the word guardian. <laughs> that word shepherd, Peter, Peter has a lot of memories from the Gospels about that term. Remember that? In John 10, he heard his Lord talk about him being the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice. And then in John 21, after Peter had gone down in flames and denied any association with our Lord outside of the trial there, and our Lord restores him after the resurrection, he restores him in front of the other disciples, and he says, what I want you to do is, is feed my sheep. Peter loved and understood this word picture and uses it here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful picture of a shepherd. A shepherd is one who feeds and one who leads and one who cares. Hebrews 13, verse 20 says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a shepherd. We come to him now as his children, and we call him our shepherd. He cares for us gently and consistently. But it's this other word that's interesting, too, guardian. Some of you might have in your mind a... Uh, um, a gladiator here, and, and that's, that's exciting. But this word for guardian is one that you may have heard before. It's episkopos. Overseer. As a matter of fact, we have two synonyms here of, of the three that refer to the New Testament office of, of pastor. We have shepherd and overseer, and you go to Acts chapter 20 and 1 Peter 5, as we'll see, and we'll get the third um, synonym in due time, but I love how Peter's saying, look to him who is the shepherd who's caring for you, and the overseer who has authority over you and is intimately acquainted with and sovereign over the details of whatever you're involved in. If he's our shepherd, we are eternally resourced. If he's our guardian, we are eternally safe. As Charles Spurgeon writes in his commentary on the Psalms, Jesus, the good shepherd, will not travel at such a rate as to overdrive the lambs. He has tender consideration for the poor and needy. Kings usually look to the interest of the great and the rich, but in the kingdom of our great shepherd, he cares most for the poor. The weaklings and the sickly of the flock are the special objects of our Savior's care. You think, dear heart, that you are forgotten because of your nothingness and weakness and poverty, but this is the very reason you are remembered, end quote. He's your shepherd. You are eternally resourced, and he's your guardian. You are eternally safe. And it says here, he's the guardian and shepherd of your souls. What does that mean? Uh, don't try to break that apart too much. It's the part of you that lives forever. Listen, your soul is the part that persecution can't touch. 
Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to touch the soul, kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Your persecutors can't touch your soul. Why? Because your Lord is your shepherd and your overseer. So what's the end game for you? The end game for you, I think you'll agree with me at the end of verse 25, is eternal invincibility. Eternal invincibility, no matter what you find yourself in, under the government, in the work, in the culture, or even in your home and even in your marriage for the sake of the gospel. Our Lord said in the upper room in John 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. I got this. And I got you. So, brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on Jesus. The perfect pattern of enduring suffering. Whether it's the government, the work culture, the campus, the husband, the wife, he's the perfect pattern. Follow his footprints. Just step in the one that you see when you can't see anything else. My pastor in Virginia Beach, Dan Davey, has a little farm. He has got a beautiful barn, good property. And at one point, he had a Clydesdale horse. He had another horse. He had a bunch of goats. Why? I don't know. I guess they cut the grass. He just had a lot of, a lot of stuff with, that would make a mess in the farm, farmyard. And he'd want, he's all excited about it all the time. You want to go out, out to the farm again or out to the barn with me? I've got to go feed the horses or whatever. And it's dark. You're on a farm. And you know what I don't want to step in. None of it. From any animal. And so he'd, he'd break ahead of me. We'd put boots on, thankfully, rubber boots. And he'd have a flashlight. And you know what? I would just step where he stepped. <laughs> I'd go where he went behind the flashlight. And I didn't, I didn't create too bad of a mess. Our Lord is saying, it's going to be hard. If you're a serious disciple, it's going to be hard. Follow the footprints of the one who went before you. His blameless speech, his upward focus, his mission mind, and his end game. See him. See him. And you don't need a telescope to see him. The veil is thin. He is near. I read to you a few moments ago Hebrews 12. I want to accentuate the first part of this verse. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the author and perfecter. Or I take you back to what started our corporate worship this morning, John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And listen, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. You see him? My brothers and sisters? It's going to get rough in our country. And we've known that. We read Romans 1 and we understand that, but it's hit the accelerator. Are you ready? You better get used to seeing him. 
And I say to those who may be watching online or those who are here with us today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, you're still bearing your own sin and you deserve the just wrath of God because of your sin. And you read this verse with us this morning that your sin has been paid for. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life, there will be covering for your sin. And you have Scripture's word for that. And Christ rose from the dead. And he offers you this free gift of eternal life if you believe him and receive him. As Paul says, if you, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Come on in. Come on into the family of disciples. Join the parade of the persecuted. The grace that will be in your sail will be overwhelmingly glorious. Lord, I pray that you will work in hearts of those who do not yet know you as your Savior and Lord. Would you grant them faith and repentance as they contemplate what your word has said, what we've read, what we've understood, what we've sung today. May they have opened eyes to see their sin, to see your wrath, to see your sacrifice, to see your victory and to receive your gift of eternal life and all the freedom that comes with being under your lordship. Would you open your eyes and give them life? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.